Welcome to the 1,000 Hours Outside podcast. My name is Jenny Urich. I'm the founder of 1,000 Hours Outside, and we have a very special guest today who runs a summer camp, and she runs actually year-round programming, and it's fairly new, and she is someone who actually can teach you how to do that. Erin Majeski, welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so thrilled to have you. So you have an actual school, the Bare Feet Farm School, that you started within the past five years, and it has become so popular. I know you sell out for your summer camp in February, and so you are trying to spread the word that this is something doable that other people could join in and do. And we do have a lot of people that are asking, you know, are there ways that we can make a living with getting outside? And I know that you know, in the 19, early 1900s, there's some statistic that something like 90% of work was done outside. And now hardly any work is done outside. Most of it's done inside. And so I think this will be so interesting for people to listen to. So I guess I would just love to start by hearing your story. You're out in Washington and you started something small and it has grown and continues to grow. So tell us where you began. Yeah, I'd love to. Our school started in 2020. I was teaching indoors. I was teaching at a preschool. We had all of the classic preschool things, a curriculum and like cute little songs and tracing name journals. And we went outside for half an hour a day. And then COVID happened. I think that was a big transformation for a lot of folks. So I needed a summer job. And I invited people to property that my family owns for what was called summer camp with Aaron. And during that summer, me and six kids hung out in a field and in the forest, we had no fence. We had four tubs of materials. We had a hose and a lot of mud, a lot of frogs. And we just hung out for the summer. It was called summer camp with Aaron. I made them wear whistles in the woods because I was scared of the woods. I didn't have a lot of experience being outside, but we experienced so much more teamwork and collaboration. And the kids were so much more capable than I had ever experienced inside. So I went back to preschool for the next school year. And it was a lot harder for me because I knew it was possible. Mm. We had fluorescent lights and assessment tools. I felt like my job was to treat these kids as data points and figure out what they could do and then try to make them be normal after that. And I found myself yelling a lot because I was frustrated with what the kids couldn't do based on this curriculum that I had to follow. Uh, I found at the end of the year that my kids didn't know each other's names. And that was really shocking for me because (laughs) they were in a classroom together, but we weren't experiencing community. We were there to learn how to count. And they actually didn't really know how to count either. So in February of that school year, my then boyfriend, who is now my husband, and I built a fence together. We bought an old boat that is is now a playhouse in our outdoor classroom. We were wow. donated a composting toilet that we built an outhouse around uh, and got a business license, hired an employee. And then we had our first summer camp as Barefoot Farm School, our first day. <laughs> wow. Erin, that's so brave. That's incredible. Thank you. I say it's it's an accident that I worked really hard for because it feels like it just kind of happened, but it was a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Our first day, we had three kids. And our last day, we had 12 kids, which was full for us that year. That summer was full of a lot of masking tape and dusty kids who stripped down before they got in the car on the way home. More frogs, more being in the woods. And then we jumped right into our first school year in our same outdoor classroom. uh, We had like a pop-up tent from Costco that ended up blowing away in the wind. So we built a shelter that we still use in our classroom. And that year for me was a lot of growth because I had to let go of all of that data collection and controlling the children when they were just playing. It It was hard for me to watch and step back and listen because I felt like I should be telling them to do something, but there was so much more learning happening when I wasn't talking. So that year we focused on building community. We had campfire singing and potlucks. We had our infamous Valentine's Day party where it was dumping rain and we tried to make pizza in a wood-fired pizza oven, but it was soggy. So we're like eating floppy pizza in the rain. We have 
one of our students' great-grandma come to volunteer with us once a week. Mm. So we were having four generations of community in our classroom. Wow. Then last summer, I had two adults plus me in a summer camp that was full in February. And then this year, I handpicked my two teachers from that school that I was working at previously because I had a baby. So I trusted them with the school while Luke was being born and growing. And now all three of us are collaborating with the school with my baby there as well. And we're one of 17 licensed outdoor preschools in the country. There's only 17. Yeah. Washington is right now the only state that licenses outdoor preschools. And yeah, there's 17 of us, but four of us are in our county. Wow. Erin, this is such an interesting story because you can kind of start small with it. You can start small with it. Mm -hmm. You started with three students and you've grown. I always think it's really neat when you start something and it gives an opportunity for someone else to have a career. So now you're bringing in other adults. And when you talk about assessment, when you talk about kids not knowing each other's names, you're talking about preschoolers, Mm four-year-olds, three and four-year-olds. When they come to your program, when they come and they do their outside time, do they learn each other's names? Totally. Yeah. That's one of our biggest goals is that they're building community and communicating with each other. At the end of the school year, we are bored as adults in our classroom because we're just kind of standing there watching them with this amazing, mm-hmm. magical play and art and building. Yeah. And do some of them learn to count? Oh, yeah. Actually, yeah. my outdoor kids last year at the end of the year, because that was our first school year, could count much better than my indoor kids who I was drilling all day. Isn't that interesting? They learn it through play. John Holt has a fabulous book if people are interested. It's called Learning All the Time. And the subtitle is How Young Children Learn to Read, Write, Do Math, and Investigate the World Without Being Taught. It's a phenomenal book. It's really a short one, but a great read because they're out there playing and they're interacting with a world that's filled with math and filled with all sorts of subjects, filled with science. And so they're learning all the time when they're out there. And of course, they're learning those extremely important social, emotional skills that most of the research says is the foundation for a successful and a happy life. So do you find then that people are coming to you? Because like I said, people are asking often, look, I want to change my career path. And maybe they already have children and this would fit with what their current life situation already is. Do you have people that are coming to you and asking, wow, you started that and you started it with three students and you only needed 12 to be filled and now it continues to grow. And obviously there is this interest. How do I start one? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I started a coaching program to answer that very question. It seems that especially because of the pandemic, people who are teaching school feel more burned out. There's less subs, there's Mm. higher expectations for kids to be learning online and teaching is just harder than it used to be all of a sudden. And it was already hard and undervalued. And I think there's a lot of teachers who love the kids, who love their work, but don't feel fulfilled by their work and who maybe don't think that they are making the change that they wish they could. That's how I felt. I think there's quite a few people who are either teaching right now or who are looking for a new career who would love to start their own schools. And I really think that's the way that schooling is going, is that we're having more and more small schools pop up. And that's a way we can really support our kids. So if someone were to ask, what does it take to start one? Now, here you were you were single, you had this experience in an indoor preschool, and you started a business. I mean, this is really impressive. It's not an easy thing to start a business. So what would you say it takes to start something like what you've started? Well, I think that I'm incredibly blessed to have access to this space. I think that is the biggest hurdle for a lot of people. My family owns the land that my school operates on. But since then, I've thought a lot about where these other schools could be. There's a school in our county that operates on a vegetable farm. There's your recent podcast about libraries that blew my mind. I think there could be awesome summer camps or outdoor schools at libraries. Lots of folks have private land who would love to share it. So I think what it takes first is a space. It takes some kids. Mm -hmm. It takes a little bit of infrastructure, whether you're out in the heat, you need shade, whether you're 
you know, in the wind, you need a wind block, you need a water source. A lot of people operate schools in public parks and they pack all of their gear in. Kudos to those people. But it's really not as hard as you would think. Mm -hmm. The public parks is interesting because when all the schools shut down and we homeschool, so that wasn't as much of an effect on our particular situation, though it was really tricky to be home with kids and they wanted their social time and things like that. But when everything shut down, I thought, well, why don't they just move these kids in small groups through the community? Like if every community, let's say, has six playgrounds or six parks and they have one library and maybe they have one museum. It's like, why don't you just move the kids through in these small groups from place to place? And there really are, like you said, a lot of options out there of places to be. And you don't need a massive space. Kids can do a lot with a little and they do do a lot with a little. They're so creative. I saw on your Instagram, you had a post about licensing. And so that to me would seem like maybe the biggest hurdle or a tricky hurdle or a scary hurdle. Do you find that that's true for a lot of people? I know that you said licensing is only available for outdoor preschool in Washington. So what do people do for the licensing issue? Yeah, it's it's different from state to state, of course. And I don't know the details for every state. In Washington, summer camps are license exempt. So there's no need to get involved with Yeah, with DCYF as our licensing body. I imagine that's similar in other states. I know it is for a few of them. In Washington also, you can have legally a preschool class for up to four hours a day without having a license. And so that's how most of the outdoor schools in Washington operate. They just have four-hour classes. And really, it creates a challenge for working families, of course, but it's inappropriate for preschoolers to be at school for a lot more than four hours anyway. So it's kind of a non-issue. Well, that's interesting. So actually, it's easier than someone would think. That's way easier than I would think that it is Mm -hmm. to get up and to get going and to get started. And so you have a philosophy for your school where you're letting kids play and you have a lot of really great resources on your website, Bare Feet Farm School of things that you've listened to, books that you've read, and things that you've watched that really have influenced the philosophy of your school and how you structure time with the kids. So can you tell us about that? Yeah, I listen to so many podcasts. There's so much information out there and so many wise people. Uh, I listen to a lot of the Raising Wildlings podcasts, a lot of your podcasts, um, a lot of Peter Gray and David Sobel and Tim Gill. There's a lot of local people who aren't famous and who are still very wise. I think that there's people like that everywhere. There's Tom Hunter and Abby Franklin, all kinds of people who I've learned from here too. Coming from an indoor preschool where we had a curriculum and kind of followed a plan, I, I think I learned a lot about getting inspiration from other people. And I do take a lot of inspiration from that indoor preschool experience. Um, I learned a lot about how kids' brains work and child development. We used Conscious Discipline, which is a wonderful resource. They have a great website. And now in our school, we take inspiration from the Montessori model, from the Waldorf school, from forest schooling. Peter Gray is, I think, our biggest inspiration in terms of letting kids play and being a child-led learning environment. We know that kids learn the best when you let them be and when their play is voluntary. Yeah, I learn a lot from from songs and some books when I have time. Yeah, well, you have a great list of books on there. I like that you had a post. You had a post recently that kind of chronicled side by side. You know, a kid could learn how to count using this worksheet, or they could learn how to count because they're playing with acorns, and they Mm -hmm. could learn how to read someone's emotions with this worksheet. You know, where they're trying to say this is angry, this is sad, pick the face. Or they could play and learn that when they take something from someone else, that's an angry face. All these different things that you had kind of side by side. And it was really interesting to think about how we can get the same outcome through several different paths. And this is the path, obviously, that would be most enjoyable for the child and is the path truly that I think is the least burdensome for the adults. Because like you said, in the other environment, you're getting frustrated. You're trying to siphon these kids through these different outcomes, but it's not in their natural way that they would normally be going about those things. And so it's really an interesting thing to think about if the outcomes at the end can be the same 
or if this one can almost even be a little bit better and the experience for everyone is better, then this is a great option. So something that you do, and I think this is interesting to families, is that you include your own baby. Your own baby is able to come and to be with you while you work and to enjoy all these benefits of multi-age situations. So how does it work to bring a baby with you to your work in all seasons, in all weather? How is that going? It's so great for all of us, for him, for me, for the kids, especially for that social emotional learning piece, because babies cry, babies get angry, babies are happy, and he's pretty clear about what he's feeling. So it, it provides an opportunity for kids to see like, oh, he looks he looks angry right now. Or, um, it's a lot of conversation starters. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was pretty cold this week. It was 25 degrees and windy at school, and I have a, a baby wearing coat that Luke is inside of. He's all tucked away. He tends to nap in the ergo, which is really lovely. But bringing the baby to school requires a lot of trust and a lot of teamwork. I have two wonderful other adults on staff that I wouldn't be able to do it without them. And potentially they will have their own baby someday and we can all kind of shift around and work together on that. Mm. Erin, that's really beautiful. That's community. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Question, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Read a few chapters of that book, start painting that guest bedroom, tackle that pile of laundry, play a card game with your kids. A lot of us spending our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. If you're feeling stuck, therapy is something that can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Therapy is a wonderful thing. It can help you learn positive coping skills or show you how to navigate properly setting boundaries. With BetterHelp, it's easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try and visit betterhelp.com 1000 hours to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp com slash 1000 hours. I have been looking for simple ways to form healthy habits and get the nutrients my body needs when my immune system feels unsupported. And that's why I decided to give AG1 a try. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit. That's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day every day. And it makes me feel nourished and ready to face the day. As a parent, longevity is on my mind more than ever before. I want to make sure I'm taking really good care of myself so I can continue to show up for the moments that matter with my kids. Every day, AG1 helps me build long-term health with daily nutrients that support brain, gut, and immune health. All it takes is one scoop a day, and I'm setting myself up for the long run. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily and that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com 1000. That's drinkag1.com 1000. Check it out. Yeah, it seriously takes a village. And it's been so humbling for me. I'm a person who loves to be capable and loves to do everything by myself. And Mm -hmm. I can't right now. Um, And it's made our school so much richer to not be just based out of me. Yeah, he started coming to class when he was three, like two to three months old. And he has his little baby puffy suit and the ergo. We have our baby wearing coat. We take breaks to eat and change diapers and all those things. Um, But he's just part of our community. Yeah, I would imagine those three and four-year-olds absolutely love having him around. And then as you head into the summer, if you have older kids, it's so sweet to have a baby around. And like you said, yeah, they would be learning so much about caring for him. And I had a podcast a long time back with, her name is Christine Marie Bailey. And she has a farm in Tennessee and she talks a lot about vulnerability and that hospitality is also letting other people help us. 
which I thought was a really interesting point and something that we don't talk about too often. It's sort of like what you're saying, we're used to helping other people and being self-sufficient and doing everything by ourselves, but there is something really sweet that happens when we allow other people to step in for us and to help us in our situation. And then like you said, it just kind of, it goes around and it comes around and as people are in different stages, we can help each other. And interestingly with the cold and with the rain, you talk about kind of what Michael Easter talks about, that we have really stepped away from being uncomfortable. But because you're outside and you're having to deal with the different types of weather, kids are learning some grit. Even from Luke as a little baby, you're starting to learn those things. So how do you deal with the kids if they're sort of whiny or complainy or it's uncomfortable outside, which I imagine happens more often than not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is uncomfortable outside. I, I think I say a lot, it's okay to be cold. And we find that there's almost a disconnect in kids' brains between I'm cold and I need to put on a coat. A coat will make me warmer. We talk a lot about if you're feeling cold. We even sing a song. If you're feeling cold, you can put on your gloves, put on your gloves, put on your gloves. Um, getting a little song in their brain makes it makes it work better. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, the more you practice and the more you live with the seasons, it's easier to be uncomfortable. And I spend a lot more time explaining to the adults that we're going to be okay than explaining Mm. to the kids that we're going to be okay because they're part of nature and it's what they know as school. Kids don't really know what weird is. I say that about the baby a lot too. He doesn't know what normal is and whatever we do is his life. Mm -hmm. And being outside is part of their lives. And so we put on our appropriate gear, our layers, our waterproof clothes. We do lots of clothes changes. We do lots of check-ins. Your hands are looking cold. Are you sure you don't want to put on some gloves? And on super cold, super windy days, like this week, for example, it was 25 degrees and windy and being moving is really important. So we are a child-led learning environment. So I'm, I'm not telling them what to do by any means, but I am encouraging them. Well, what's what's that over there across the field? I see a really big stick. It looks like you might need that to do whatever you're doing and kind of giving them mm-hmm. tools to keep moving. And really, they're so adaptable. It's incredible. Yeah. Interesting. Like you said, it's the parents that have a more difficult time with it because they're not as used to it because the majority of their life has not been in those environments. It's interesting to think about a child, if they come to your program and they're three or they're four, they've spent a large portion of their life outside, especially Mm -hmm. in comparison to the adult, the percentage of life that they've spent in these different environments. So they're pretty adaptable and they're used to it. And 25 and windy is cold. I feel like my threshold is 28 and sunny and I'm fine until then. And then if you dip below 28 and you throw in elements like wind, it is chilly. But like you said, if they're moving, that's keeping their blood flowing. And if they're in layers, that's going to really help. Do you find that parents are concerned about safety? Yeah, we're outside for four to six hours a day. And I promise the parents that their kids will not get hypothermia. Um, <laughs> and they won't even, we've never been close to hypothermia. But yeah, we do play in the woods on slippery logs. And I always remind people that a pointy stick in the woods is very similar to a pointy pencil in a classroom. Sure. And we give our kids scissors in both of those environments. There are some dangers that are related to being outside just due to, you know, weather and the natural environment. But there also are studies that show that more kids get injured on playground equipment than playing in the woods because if kids are assessing their own risks and they only climb as high as they can by themselves or they are really looking out for that slippery ice, they're much less likely to get hurt because they don't want to get hurt. Mm -hmm. They're going to only do what they're capable of. And we make a point to never, you know, lift them up onto a branch that they can't reach because that's not part of their their natural environment. Mm -hmm. So it seems to a lot of people that being outside would be more dangerous than being inside, but there are different risks. And if we're talking about the risks and we're supporting our kids to assess their own risks and boundaries, then they end up a lot more safer and also stronger and more resilient in the end. Right. Right. And I have definitely read those statistics about playgrounds because our only injury, which was um, an issue with a piece of faulty playground equipment, was at 
a place like that. I mean, we've not had any serious injuries in the woods and I know that they can happen. But when that happened, I went down that rabbit hole of research and learned that the more dangerous of the two is at the man-made playgrounds because like you said, there's more opportunity, I think, for a kid to go higher or to be on the edge of something and, and fall off than there would be if they were in an environment where they can only use their own body, their own strength, their own size to get to these spots that they want to be at. And I mean, I totally agree with you. It's riskier, I think, in the long run to not learn what your body can and can't do in this slow and systematic way as they grow. So then, you know, you also talk about, and I think this is actually a really interesting point. You bring it up a lot. You say it's quieter outside. It's quieter outside. That's counterintuitive. You think it would be boisterous and loud. And I think a lot of times you're trying to sort of step away from that noise as parents, as teachers, because it can, and probably even as students, right? This can be too much, this environment. You know, you've got a classroom of 25 children, that's loud, but then you step out and you say, it's quiet. Tell us about that. Yeah, in a classroom, there's walls and the noise bounces off of the walls and the energy bounces off of the walls too. It's loud for your ears and it's also loud for your spirit. And being outside, there's the big sky and the big trees that absorb a lot of sound. Uh, For kids who have complex sensory systems, being inside is often pretty overwhelming. And they're going to be in that fight or flight state of their brain because it's so loud that it's bouncing around their heads and they can't get any learning done or any connection done because they're just overwhelmed by all the noise and all the feelings. And when we're outside, it can be loud if you make it loud. It can be quiet. If you keep it quiet, you can move away from the group because there's more space. People who are sensory seekers can find that mud or roll down that hill or throw the leaves or whatever they're looking for and they're learning. And people who need more space can listen to the wind and make some little fairy houses in the woods. There's all kinds of options for people to learn in the way that suits them Mm -hmm. outside, especially in the snow. It's been snowing here recently and the snow just absorbs all of that sound and it's so quiet. Yeah. I learned that as an adult that snow absorbs sound, but I remember having experiences as a child going out early in the morning. It's a, you know, maybe it's a snow day, so there's no school. So you go out early and you start to play in the snow and it is just so quiet, even in a neighborhood with a ton of houses and a ton of cars. So there's something about that. And it gives a beautiful life both to the kids and to the adults. I think something that's unique with what you do is that you have multi-age experiences. So you talked earlier about the great grandma that comes on the Wednesdays. Can you talk about how this multi-age sort of summer camp feel especially during the summer when you have a lot of different ages, what that does for kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we all have different skills. And our summer camp is for kids who are ages three to seven, which is a a big, there's a big difference between three and seven. But there are some three-year-olds who are much more emotionally adept than the seven-year-olds. And most seven-year-olds know how to read better than a three-year-old so they can read to each other. And we're all sharing skills with each other. Uh, It kind of levels the playing field a little bit because not all five-year-olds are the same and skills come in at different times Mm. for people. Isn't that interesting? That allows you to be yourself, I think, for longer. Yeah. Because you're not having to assimilate into what everyone else around you is doing. If there's kids that are at a higher level and you want to work up to where they're doing, if there's kids that are at a different level, there's always someone to play with. That's really interesting. I like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too. It's really, really fun to see the kids teaching each other things. I think also the littles have a more close connection with their imagination and sometimes they bring these big kids on adventures that it's it's just so sweet to watch yeah that's really special i mean we have friends of all ages some of our best friends are 10 years younger than us so it's really a great thing to start young and then you know you have the great grandma that comes as well on a regular basis so to have those different generations and those ways to connect is very beautiful and I would imagine that as much as that is special for the little kids, it's also special for her to have those experiences. Yeah. And she brings so much, I don't even know what it is, wisdom and properness and and joy in a way that I can't give to the kids. Mm -hmm. And I bring things that she can't give to them. We're just, everybody is so important in our community. Yeah. All the different ages. It's very beautiful. You talked earlier about that you have a child-led environment. Can you tell us what that means and also why you do it that way? 
Mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot of misconceptions about a child-led learning environment. So I'm glad that you ask about it because it sounds wrong. And when I first heard about it, it sounds like a terrible idea. The kids aren't ready to be in charge and they're not. The kids are not in charge. The -hmm. kids are in charge of what they play and how they play it. The adults are in charge of holding strong boundaries so that the kids know where the edges are and the kids can be swirly and imaginative and magical inside of this kind of container that we create for them. We give them the tools to follow their interests. And so maybe one kid is really into dumping and pouring. And so we have buckets and measuring spoons and water and sand and all of those things that they might need to follow that interest because we don't know what's going on in their brain. We can't tell them what they need. And we have markers for kids who are interested in learning how to write and draw. And just having all the resources available gives them the opportunity to learn what they need in that moment. Mm -hmm. And so do you think that we need to be entertaining kids? No. I say to parents, we are not in the business of entertaining your children. And boredom is an important part of childhood and an important part of all of our lives. Uh, I say to the kids a lot that I'm excited to see what your creative brain figures out. Mm -hmm. And if they are not bored, then they won't have the opportunity to figure out what interests them and figure out what they need to be doing in that moment. Part of not entertaining the kids is, is also being authentic. I'm not going to play with them unless I want to, which sounds harsh. And, (laughs) um, Kids, yeah, kids play in a different way than we do. Uh, we've had a lot of imaginary kitties in our classroom these days, and I don't like to play that game. And it's I don't know how to play that game. And when I try to play that game with them, it's not fun for anybody because we have a weird power dynamic, and I'm like trying to be this thing that I'm not. But when they play it by themselves, it goes on for hours and they go on all these adventures and put the kitties in the car and take the kitties to the store and all these things. But if the kids want to draw with me, I would love to do that because I love drawing and that's an authentic experience for everybody where we're not, I'm not entertaining them. They're also not entertaining me. That's a lot of work. Erin, that's really interesting. I've never heard anybody talk about that before or talk that way, Hmm. but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think it's a, it's part of a Montessori type philosophy, also Janet Lansbury, I think. Well, it's really interesting because I don't like to play Uno. It's my least favorite game of all the games. Sorry for any Uno fans. I just don't like it. And I think it's boring. And there we go. I'll stop slamming Uno. Boring in a bad way, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, boring in a bad way. Yeah, it's just to me, it's not, it doesn't like light me up. And I don't like to play Uno, but there's tons of other games that I do like to play. And so with my kids, I don't play Uno. (laughs) I will not play it, but I'll play. There's 10 other options. So now I don't have to feel bad about that because I am being (laughs) authentic. That is a I'm going to mull over that. And I'm curious to read more about that because like like you said, it makes a lot of sense. If you're inserting yourself in a way that doesn't work, then you're inhibiting the experience for everyone else. Like you said, they'll play for hours if they're with their imaginary Mm -hmm. kitties. And if you join in, it just changes the whole thing. So I think that's actually really a freeing concept. It's really, really interesting, Erin. Hmm. Yeah, thank you. I think it's um, related to consent too, and knowing what you what you need and how to ask other people what they need. It starts at a young age. Mm-hmm. It could be about sex. It doesn't have to be. That's a word about play and relationships and everything. If you know what you want to do in a moment, you can identify with that experience mm-hmm. in other people. Yeah, and you can know yourself. Interesting things to think about for sure. Everyone wants to start their year off on the right foot. And for me, that means making sure I'm eating well and have enough energy to do everything I want to do. But I'm not going to run to the butcher every day to get a fresh cut of quality meat. That's why Good Chop is such a lifesaver for our family. Good Chop offers fully customizable boxes of high quality meat and seafood delivered to your door on your schedule. Their products are vacuum sealed and frozen at peak freshness. So you can stock your freezer and cook when you want. We had a somewhat last-minute get-together recently, and it was so incredibly convenient to just head to the freezer and pull out a couple bags of Good Chops, 
hamburger patties to whip up some burgers quickly. They were so delicious. Besides being delicious, it's important to know it won't cost you a fortune either. Good Chops price per meal starts at just $3.74. Go to goodchop.com outside120 and use code outside120 to get $120 off across your first four boxes. That's code outside120 at goodchop.com outside120 for $120 off. Goodchop.com outside120 code outside 120. Eating better is easy with Factors delicious ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So get started today and get after your goals. Some of the things we love about Factor are their two-minute meals. You can fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. Our kids love the pancakes, smoothies, and more. And there's a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, including midday bites. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. And remember, to sign up and save, we've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash outside50 and use code outside50 to get 50% off. That's code outside50 at factormeals.com slash outside50 to get 50% off. A totally unrelated topic, but one that you talk about a lot is singing. And Mm -hmm. I've been learning more about music, even though I grew up playing the piano. So I know a lot about music and I have learned a lot along the way about how music helps our brains, but even more so in the last little while with Dr. Carla Hannaford, have been learning about how music helps with whole brain integration. And when you were talking earlier about this fight or flight state that I've been learning from Dr. Carla Hannaford, that when we're in that fight or flight state, we really cannot learn very well. Part of our brain is shut down. Part of our systems a lot of times are not working. And so music is something that really helps. It helps with the cross connections between the two hemispheres of the brain. So you do a lot of singing at mm-hmm. your summer camp and at your preschool. Can you tell us what and why? Yeah, I grew up in a really musical family. I'm so grateful to have two musical parents and a musical community around me. There's so many benefits of singing with yourself, singing with kids, singing with everybody. Singing helps you remember things. It is a pre-math skill. The rhythm in, in singing is how to get counting into your body. It's a way to build community. It's a way to express your feelings. After coming to our school, parents often say, my kid's just singing all the time. She's making up all these songs. And um, yeah, I had a, a kid in our summer camp who came in having a really hard time making accessing his executive functioning skills and he was doing a lot of hitting and um, being pretty out of control is is what we call it at our school and we did a lot of singing with him a lot of deep breaths and yeah sometimes when you're singing it's like breathing except you're singing like I yeah it's a rhythmic breathing yeah a, a Tom Hunter song um, Tom Hunter's a local Bellingham musician and it's like a, a meditation and you can breathe in and then sing it out. I don't know. There's something different about singing. I, I mm-hmm. think I can't really explain it. But anyway, this kid, we did a lot of singing with him. And he said to me one time, Aaron, I can't hear you when you tell me that. And when he was in his fight or flight state, when his brain felt like a tornado, I was telling him, you know, like, don't hit these kids it's not effective to use don't um it more effective to say like i need you to use your safe hands but giving him directions and he just could not hear me in that moment and that was a it was a turning point for me to hear him say that because he really he was being honest like Aaron, i can't hear you it is the truth that's what that carla hannaford says she says that right. your brain hemispheres control the other side of the body and if your 
non-dominant side shuts down because you're in fight or flight. That's what happens. Your less dominant mm -hmm. side of the brain basically shuts off, you know, or stops functioning up to 80% when you're stressed out. And if that controls your dominant ear, then you really are going to have a hard time hearing. You might have a hard time seeing. You might be more clumsy. There's all of these things that are going on. And we have a daughter that's like that in stressful situations. It's like no information goes in. None. And the way yeah. that we help that is to help to de-stress, but also to help to increase those connections across the brain. And music does that. Yeah. If you have a song stuck in your head, then you're thinking about that. And it's, it's kind of on autopilot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It helps you have some self-regulation, I think. There's this interesting thing about when you live life and you don't have firsthand view of different situations. So for example, I used to be a public school teacher and I taught in the public schools until 2008. And so I left before cell phones were rampant. There were starting to be blackberries and things in technology changed so quickly. And so now I don't really have any sort of concept of what's going on and how has that integrated into the school system. And I heard someone talking recently about how in their school, in their middle school, kids have to fill out a Google form in order to use the restroom. And it's just a way to make sure that if there's fights or anything that happens, it's just kind of these interesting, but that's kind of interesting, right? You have to fill this form out and someone always knows where you are. And so that's something that I didn't know was going on. And I actually didn't know that there was any assessment going on in preschool. That really blows my mind. I just had posted something recently about how someone said basically that assessments are garbage. And it was kind of a controversial thing, but I tend to go that route. Like you were talking earlier about how people grow at different rates and they're individuals. And so to be assessing in preschool just seems pretty wild to me. But you have in your literature and the things that you talk about, you have information about school readiness. And we're talking about school readiness. We're talking kindergarten, first grade. In Finland, second grade. In Waldorf, second grade, seven, eight-year-olds, not even kindergartners. But instead, instead of assessing three-year-olds and four-year-olds, what are some other ways that we can help our young children be school ready? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, if we can think about observing rather than assessing, all of those tools are valuable. It is so valuable to be able to know how high a kid can count or know if they can grip a pencil in a way that works for them. But it's not valuable to use that data to force them to do something they're not ready for. Hmm. So we're observing the kids and communicating with their families about their speech and their physical development and their literacy skills and all of the ways that they're expressing themselves at school because preschool is called preschool for a reason. It's not school. It's before mm -hmm. school. It's the place where we experience community for the first time without our grown-ups. It's the place where we're exposed to different thoughts and ideas often for the first time. There's so much going on in preschool that is not learning how to identify letters. And once you have the skills to be confident and resilient and all those things, you are able to learn better. Imagine you're in a room in a or in a kindergarten room with 24 five-year-olds that you don't know, and all of them can count to 100, and all of them can identify their sight words, but they can't share crayons without hitting each other. Hmm. And they are all crying because they miss their parents. They're all trying to run away. They don't know how to put their coats on. There's so much more to, hmm. quote, kindergarten readiness than those academic skills yeah. and so much learning that is missed because kids don't have the social emotional skills they need to be ready for kindergarten or whatever's coming next for them. That's really interesting because what you're saying basically is we are still assessing to a degree. We're observing and in a way that is assessing some of the things that we can really easily keep track of. How high can they count? How many letters do they know? And then a lot of the other things, it's verbal yeah, they're really good at sharing or they need to work on these different emotional responses. But the purpose of it is different. The purpose of it is to be aware and to help scaffold them in the ways that they need, as opposed to, like you said, using it as a data point and then tr trying to sort of shove them down this narrow path of what they need academically to be ready for kindergarten or first grade. Waldorf has interesting information, and I know that I've posted about it before, People, people get mad about everything. Um, so, but I've posted about some of the Waldorf things before because to me it makes sense that 
in dealing with physical readiness, there are components there. And I know that from my reading, when we talk about eyesight, we talk about how our eyes track and all of those sort of things that our eyes are still growing and those, our eyes aren't growing, but the rods and cones, the shapes of those are still being formed and natural light is so helpful for that. And one of the things that they talk about the Waldorf schools is when your baby teeth fall out, that that signifies that your internal organs are finished forming. I think that's what it is, your eyes, your ears. So you can really hear the sounds that you need to hear and you can really see the letters on the page and it's easier to track with both eyes. And so how does this outdoor play help our kids on a physical level to be ready for school? Yeah, Rudolf Steiner, the founder of the Waldorf whole system said that you are not ready for formal schooling until you can reach up with your hand and reach around to touch your other ear. And you'd be surprised how many people can't do that. Yeah, it seems mm-hmm. like, you know, such a normal thing, but it's really sweet to, to see them try to reach their ears. Um, being outside and learning through your body is so important. When you're running, you get the rhythm in your feet. And like I said before, that's a math skill. It's a music skill. And you can feel it in your body because you're your body is mm-hmm. still developing when you're three and four and five. Learning through all of this tumbling and climbing uh, supports your proprioceptive and vestibular senses, which is what you need to be able to sit in a chair, for example. Ray Pika says that there's a pandemic almost of first graders falling out of their chairs because they don't have the core strength to sit in a chair because you need to be moving and climbing to develop that core strength so that you can sit down later. Being outside develops all the skills that you need to be still and you need to be able to move before you can be still. Yeah. And even that running, that's that cross lateral movement that is helping to form brain connections between the two hemispheres. So there's a lot going on. Waldorf has some things that are a little different that some people do or don't agree with, but the reaching over to touch your ear, that's a body proportions thing. Basically what he's saying is that there are physical markers, just like even how there's in nature, there are physical markers. It's like when this blooms, you know that that will bloom. These things that naturally go together and that our children have physical markers that show school readiness. And as a culture, we don't pay attention to those. We say, oh, did you turn five by September 1st? Okay, you're ready. But there's no thought as to, are they physically ready? Are they socially ready? And is this the best thing for them? So the outdoor preschool experience in so many ways, you talk about light source, physical activity, interacting with nature, cooperation, fine motor skills. I mean, that we haven't even talked about that. All the fine motor skills that are happening when kids are outside of playing their imagination, all of these things are helping to get them school ready. So Aaron, if people are interested in what you do and possibly exploring that for themselves, can you tell them how that works and where they can go to find more information? Yeah, I would love to support people, especially to start summer camps here in Whatcom County or around the world. I think there's probably a lack of summer camps everywhere. Uh, we have our website, barefootfarmschool.com, and there's a, a consulting page on there where we can talk about starting a summer camp or a school or how to get your family outside more. We're on Instagram at barefootfarmschool or you can come find us on the farm. Oh, how neat would it be to actually come? And what I get from you is that it maybe isn't as hard as someone would think, and the impact is very substantial, both for the children, for any adults that come to visit, like the great-grandparents, and then also for your colleagues. Like you talked about, you're helping people to get out of environments that maybe don't feel natural for them, and they can come be a part of your program. I also recommend that people go to your website, barefeetfarmschool.com slash resources, because you have their a list of things to read. Some of them are even just articles that you could click on. Some of them are books. So that is a really great resource you have on their roots, shoots, buckets, and boots by Sharon Lovejoy, which is the most fabulous gardening book there is for children and for families and for schools. It is such a fun one. It's one of my favorite books I've ever read, Roots, Shoots, Buckets, and Boots. And then what's interesting, you have on here some of my favorites like Balance and Barefoot and Free to Learn. 
but some of these I haven't read so I'm excited to look at those and then you have to watch a couple videos people that like to learn that way you have some different videos that people can watch ones about Denmark's forest kindergartens how interesting and ones about forest school and risky play like we just talked about and then you have links to a bunch of different podcasts that people could listen to if that's the way they like to learn. So you have a bunch from Raising Wildlings, the science behind wild play, and they're all linked. This is fantastic. And what are the impacts of a zero risk culture? Those are really interesting topics. You have Tom Hunter on the musician that you talked about earlier. And so there's great information there if people want to go to barefeetfarmschools.com slash resources. That's a great place to go. And you've done such a great job of pulling all those resources together about topics that are very important and very pertinent. Yeah, thank you. It's an ever-growing list. Yeah, sure. Sure, so people can check back. Erin, we always end our podcast the same way. We end it with, um, it's really interesting. It's like maybe someday your students would be having these as their sort of favorite memories of childhood, but a favorite memory of yours from your childhood that was outside. Mm -hmm. I have this very strong memory. I was probably, I don't know, eight or nine. And we had this, this water slide that was a big piece of black plastic and a hose at the top of the hill. And uh, one day we caught a bullfrog out of the pond which we do at my school that very same pond and we kept this bullfrog all day i when the kids um catch frogs now i am a little bit hesitant because we know that touching frogs is is not great for their skin and all of this but it's so fun um so we caught this bullfrog that was like the size of a softball and kept it with us all day and we brought it down the water slide and we made it a house and we we put it back at the end of the day i i don't know what bullfrog lifespans are but if that frog is still in the pond i bet it's hiding forever (laughs) you had a special little pet to go on all your adventures with you for the day and what an interesting answer that it's still in a place that you're still using today with a new generation of young kids that's really special and unique and i think they will have those similar memories as they grow that they have been rooted in this program that you have created for them and maybe wouldn't be having those experiences had you not created the program. So Erin, thank you so much. There's a lot to think about here, a lot to think about in terms of child development, but also a lot to think about in terms of ways that we could find a career that supports the whole person well-being of both students and staff. And so, yeah, you've given us a lot to think about and a lot to talk about, and I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's been an honor. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts.